In this roundtable discussion on how to prepare students for the ever-evolving world of work, uh, we'll be delving into the key skills needed for success, um, practical strategies for integrating technology and digital literacy into the student learning journey, and how we can foster lifelong learning. We'll also discuss some forward-thinking approaches to bridging the education and industry gap and discuss current global best practices. We'll also explore the delicate balance between parental and cultural expectations in helping guide students towards future careers. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my guest today. Um, welcome to, to this conversation. Um, and what I will do is kick off with the first question. Um, what are the key current and future skills and competencies you all believe that students will need to develop in order to succeed in this rapidly changing landscape that is the world of work? Who'd like to kick that one off? Um, I would say it's going to be probably a little controversial, but um, patience. I feel like our students um, are so used to having everything so quickly, right? And you know, on their computer, on their phone, they're used to being answered right away. They're used to just having things done probably quicker than we all grew up with. Um, and so I've in my in my meetings with my students, especially my seniors right now, I feel like that's something they definitely need to learn because they're going to be working with people who are from all backgrounds, all cultures, um, all ages. And some of us are not as technologically inclined as they might be. Um, and so I think they really do need to learn the skill of patience. That's something that's kind of been lost along the way with all of the, the technology that has arisen. So that would be my number one for my students? I would say that from a most education's perspective, one thing we're really trying to emphasize with students is the um, concept of lifelong learning. So I think along with that come to concepts as well of adaptability and flexibility. Um, so the world is constantly changing, um, especially due to technology, due to um, different geopolitical changes. And I think that adaptability and that and teaching and somehow imparting a desire to continue learning, continue adapting is going to be crucial for, uh, for students to succeed in a world that is um, changing and for be able, to be able to respond um, to the way the world is changing as well. I'm just going to second you on that, um, Sean and Amy. And uh, listening to you made me think about David Pink's book a while back on a whole new world where he was promoting um, that the master of fine arts were going to be the new MBAs. And that was shocking for people at the time to think. And that was a rupture in the way we saw jobs and we saw work and students and people related with work from the industrial age. So in, in these times, it reminds me of a book that was published maybe before you were born in the 70s by um, Albion Tuffler. And he talked about future shock about how the technology was going to advance so quickly that we would possibly be paralyzed. And so one of his key phrases is, and I, I'm going to just quote him because it's so in line with what you have just said, is that the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And when we look at the World Economics Forums, they're calling for soft skills with the so-called soft skills as the key for success. And it's just what you had mentioned before, uh, students and us, everyone, 
I need to have that flexibility, that agility to see what's out there, to move forward and to adapt. Those would be the key skills. I would say if you ask me one word, I would say the capacity to adapt and to adjust and reframe. Those are three words, sorry. Yeah, I love what I love what you just said there, Rosa, because it, it links to what I wanted to mention, which was those kind of human skills that are not going to be replaceable with AI or with, you know, the ever in kind of increasing speed of change. And I was led to think about the the kind of high performance environments laid out by the University of Chicago, which mentioned the four C's and we're all really familiar with, you know, other soft skills. But I think these are especially cru crucial, the creativity the collaboration skills, the confidence, and then compassion. And compassion goes hand in hand with what Amy's just said, which is we need to be able to empathize and, and, and be human with one another in a way that no, no robot is going to be able to do for, for a while. Um, and those are the skills that I think are really future-proof. So um, completely agree with you and, and, and love the quote that you gave us because it's, it's uh, yeah, it's spot on. I'm going to, I'll put a compassion as well, Rosa, into, into the article just so that the viewers can can reference those too. Sorry. I was just going to follow up with what Kyra was saying, and I think compassion is such a key word. And I think we talk a lot in international education about the concept of uh, global citizenship and cultural awareness, but ultimately that comes down to uh, compassion and empathy, just the ability to uh, understand and appreciate other people's viewpoint. And I think you know, we're on a call right now where we're all sitting in different corners of the globe from different nationalities. Um, and I think that is going to continue to increase with remote work becoming you know, a really permanent fixture of uh, many uh, companies. And I think that ability to have uh, compassion, um, which then follows on um, you know, cultural awareness, global citizenship are, are really, really important. Hmm. Sean, what you have said is just so key because um, one of the things that as educators, we are, I would say, accountable for is to empowering students to use their voice. And, and more in these times where um, the future of work is very much what you make of it. Um, this is not like your parents where you would go work 30 years or you would work from nine to five and you would stay there forever. Uh, these are jobs that are coming up and about and are just being invented as well. I interviewed a couple of months ago, a 14 year old who had her own business in Malaysia and she was very confident about her business plan and her assessments. And, and I was blown away just to think that somebody at 14 um, had already, you know, juggling her academics with her enterprise. And it was a tutoring uh, company that she had and it was very successful. So just saying that piece about um, knowing the, your identity, embracing our identity, embracing who we are, that comes across also with being vulnerable with ourselves and being empathetic with our own selves. So that component of, of um, being aware of who you are and how you relate to the world and what problems you like to solve. Um, I think that adds up to, you know, you want to solve problems for all of us, for the world. And so that's an indicator of that being future-proof. That's purpose at the end of the day. Um, just want to add to that because I, I think that's, we're completely aligned in, in this particular component of um, 
not juggling and saying people need to have this, this, and this, and that. It's really mostly to be human, right, Kyra? <laughs> Good, nice. Yeah. So you, you've kind of, I, you make me want to skip ahead to the what's getting in the way of all of this, because the thing you've mentioned is um, being yourself is hard when you're young, right? You don't know who yourself is and you don't know uh, necessarily what it is that you want to do but there's also that, that external pressure and that that those expectations that they feel from us the adults who've lived a different world of work and we're still coloring their experiences with what ours were and I think that's really important that we learn to get out of their way because I like you have students who have successful online companies and who are teaching us things about how the, the world of work is going to be I think if we also can listen to them and learn from them we're gonna we're gonna go further faster That's awesome. Yeah, I, I had um, uh, a question question two in my next, but I want to flip flip the questioning actually um, to, to question three first, because I think it directly relates to some of the key points we touched on. I kind of want to dig into those a little bit more. Um, so, so moving on to, to the second question I had in mind. So how can educators and schools um, as a whole foster that culture of lifelong learning? What kind of key um, practical, actionable things can can we do, uh, or maybe that you've you know that you've heard from other schools that, that they've effectively done, uh, and maybe touching on like Kara said, one some of those challenges as well. You know, what's getting in the way of 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 that of that too. Um, so yeah, it'd be great to to hear people's thoughts on on how we can actively um, actionable um, steps to, to to sort of foster this lifelong learning. I have a couple of thoughts on this. I'm not sure what parts of it are, are exactly actionable, but. Um, uh, I mean, we can expose, try our best to expose the students to real world, real world challenges as we can. But I think most important, we really need to uh, demonstrate how much we value curiosity, but also how much we we value um, failure. Failure is a very important um, uh, uh, lesson, and we teaching um, students to uh, fail fast and learn from that, learn resilience is is really key, and not to be afraid of failure. I think that's uh, that's a very very intricate and uh, an explicable part of uh, a lifelong learning process. Daniel, I'm going to um, follow up on what you're saying just because you've made me think on, on that invitation to reflect on how we see things. And Max, when you're asking about barriers, sometimes I believe that our best intentions sometimes are barriers. And this comes back to what Kyra was saying about listening. Um, how many times have we just um, and taken into account a, a resource just because it's it's there and it's the trend, right? And when we're looking at um, what we can do that's actionable, I would say, listen for ourselves to see how we value curiosity to what you've just said, how we identify struggles and challenges, how we role model them as well. That's something that's actionable right away as, as, as in educators, because at the end of the day, we really don't have the answers, but we're, we're just there to support students to find their answers. And I think that when we listen, like Kyra, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that word with me. When we listen, we can find out what is really the need. So just instead of plugging and playing, what is the need? And for example, I can say that um, we're hearing a lot about the need to develop um, students who are sustainable and have all these um, reactions to climate change. And one of the things that I would say to that, that could be a barrier, is that when we move too fast, we might not acknowledge the impact uh, 
that some of us moving too quickly may have on students. And the American Psychological Association just last year released an article on how uh, moving students too quickly to work on climate change was having the reverse effect. It was generating anxiety. It was generating uh, kids who, who were feeling in disconnection with the world that are surrounding them. And that was possibly just moving too quickly. Another example um, would be when we're working in communities where, um, with the same example of climate change, when we're working in communities where the main income is the, of the economy is oil production, like how do you align that? So this is accountability, um, Daniel, to what you were saying of reviewing ourselves. That's what we can do, that's actionable. And that's the first step because we are like the first line um, when we're talking to students. That's what I would add. I just wanna add something as well. And I agree wholeheartedly with Daniel and um, Rosa. However, um, I feel like we need to take a step back from the student and we need to also think about the parents and their expectations. And that is sometimes a barrier um, for kids to be able to see what they're going to be doing in the future because they might have an idea of what they're going to be doing, but their parents may have a completely different idea of that. Um, so being, um, a counselor in a school and having, you know, to meet with parents and students, I try to make a point of meeting with my students beforehand just to see where they're coming from. I don't typically meet with, with parents by themselves, but I'm happy to do so, so that they understand where their, where their child's coming from. Um, so I feel like we do put a lot of pressure as adults on kids to kind of know um, how to maneuver through all of this with the expectation of their parents hanging over them a little bit. I know that might be a little negative, but it is, um, an, you know, it is something they have to deal with. So for, as far as it being um, something that is a hindrance to, um, you know, them going into the job market and figuring out what they wanna do, I think educating parents, meeting with parents, seeing, you know, what their expectations are and how those align with what their, what their child is actually trying to do is something that we do in the school system um, so that it's a smoother transition, hopefully, for what the, the students themselves want to do, um, but still take into consideration what their parents are hoping, you know, the outcome of that is. Yes, and Amy, I think it's our duty and our responsibility to also help educate parents on what the future is looking like as well. So definitely there's a balance there. I completely hear you. And in international private fee-paying schools, that balance is harder to strike sometimes because the children are an output in, in many families, right? Um, but we, we have to be able to communicate that in you know, networks that we move in, we have information about what the future of work is going to look like. And it's our duty and our responsibility to present that in a way that says there's greater choice than you might have imagined. And so some of that is about role modeling. Some of that is about putting the right people in front of those families and making it okay, as Daniel said, to fail, to try something out, to recognize that if the first pathway is not the one, nothing, your life isn't gonna end. Um, and that there, in fact, there are many, many different hybrid versions of success. And so I think that's, that's the greatest kind of relief that we can play if a student has felt boxed in or if a family has very, very difficult expectations for them. 
I think that's the role that, you know, I'm sure that you've played many times. <laughs> I know I have. And I, and I see it as my duty, my responsibility to counsel those families as well. Can I add an example of what you have just said, Kyra, with parents? And um, I don't know you, but for example, sometimes when you see a group of parents together and they're coming for the, the together for, for us the same reason, in schools, you're either they're going to say something that you don't like or they're there for because you just asked them to come, right? So we have an experience of having parent talks where um, we bring uh, speakers and this is not for them to be better parents. It's just like giving parents language, giving them language so that they know what their students, their kids are talking about and also allowing them to have the space to grow together, to learn. And one of the most um applauded sessions was a professor who was asking them from the very beginning, raise your hand if you tell your students, your, your children about your experience of job, if you tell them about your your expectations, if you tell them, and, and, and the way he was phrasing it, parents were, yes, yes, we're doing this. And he just sat down, well, you're doing a disservice. Your experience is very different. And the whole session was just about unpacking how their world was different to the future world. That session, that level of awareness um, could have gone any way, but we're talking about parents from all over the world who were tuned in for this talk, had a aha moment, a collective aha moment. So this is an indicator that parents are willing. And a lot of the times it's just, they're afraid because they're left behind. <laughs> and so our jobs is just to bring them forward and part of it is giving them homework too, <laughs> align them in the learning process. And, and that is just such a rewarding experience. And I just wanted to say that because sometimes we are hesitant because of the risks that involves, but I would say it's a, it's a good risk. We, we, even if you feel it didn't go well, um, it's a good opportunity that has been provided for thought. Um, just say, just sharing that out, just in case someone says, I would like to do it, but I'm not sure. Go for it. That's excellent. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, engaging parents and, you know, not being afraid to engage and, and challenge parents' conceptions is, is is key, isn't it? To, to sort of bring them along that journey, uh, as well as students, obviously. Yeah. Excellent. And moving on to our next question, obviously, um, technology is going to be playing a huge role in, in the future, well, the work of it already is, and, and how, how best can we prepare students to, for this world that is going to be, I mean, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like in maybe 10 years time. Um, so how, how can schools and educators effectively integrate technology, uh, even digital literacy, you know, knowing what you can trust um, when you're bringing in resources, or even from a teacher's perspective, you know, knowing what they're bringing in to teach their, their students is, is, is trusted resources, uh, trusted sources too. So um, how can we, how, how can schools and educators effectively do this? Integrating technology and educating um, students around digital literacy. Um, I'm sure, Daniel, you'll have uh, lots of thoughts on this uh, with your research, but yeah, it'd be great to open this up to, to everyone. I want to hear from Daniel. <laughs> Go, uh, Daniel. I'll, 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 I'll just start it off and we can kind of, uh, we can kind of ping pong it back and forth. So, um, well, I mean, well, first of all, I'll just start with that. We need to make sure that obviously for the students, but also, also for uh, the teachers and faculty, we need to have robust plans that are helping to upskill them, upskill them with the latest tools and such that are, that are coming along. And, and, and we, we probably shouldn't be, uh, you know, we should learn to have a little less, um, uh, you know, kind of knee-jerk fear to when new developments are happening because they'll, they're going to continue to accelerate as well. 
Um, I, I just want to say like one kind of practical side is that I really think it, it would be important to, to kind of make a lot of the learning experiences happen around project-based learning. And I'm, what I mean by this is have, having students come together to make, make a product, make a game, make a startup, do something like this. Um, because it, it, this might seem a, at first a little counterintuitive, but you don't, you don't necessarily need, need to code to make, you know, anything, uh, you don't need to learn to code or sorry, learning to code, to make a product or, or to make uh, an app or a game is not really as important as it once was. And that's the reason, because a lot of these large language models can actually walk you through the steps that you need to do to create such a thing and even write much of the code for you. So there, there are ways to kind of, uh, to learn how to leverage these tools to kind of amplify the abilities of these students. And I think it'd be good for many of us um, to, to learn how to, to better in, embrace this. But I'll go ahead and put a, a bookmark in there and, and just kick it around for other people's thoughts. And, and I'll chime back in on some other uh, topics as well. So I'm, I'm really curious to know your take on kind of the schools that decided to ban chat GPT or, you know, like outlawed it, right? And, and because yeah. it links directly to what you're saying, you've said a couple of things which, which have stuck with me. One is trying things out and being okay to fail and make mistakes. And the, and the second is lifelong learning and being, up, being able to upskill as staff and professionals. If we don't know how something yeah. works, we're afraid of it. And we're gonna, we're gonna not know how many more things work much faster. <laughs> so yeah. um, I'm, I'm keen to know what your, your thoughts are on that kind of knee-jerk, you just mentioned knee-jerk reactions. Yeah. I think that the, my opinion is that embracing and learning as much as we can without becoming overwhelmed ourselves is the way, but also you know, putting time into inset and, and professional development so that we are familiar with tools so that we understand them and that we've tested them and tried them out so that we can understand how to use them in the classroom or in any of the processes that we need to use them in. But yeah, what, what would your yeah. comment there be? Yeah, so this is gonna be a, maybe a, perhaps a, a counterintuitive at first, but um, uh, but with the chat GPT, when that kind of came out and it was first banned by many schools, um, like on, on one hand, I think that, that you know, we should have, of course, not just immediately rushed to adopt everything blindly, right? That, that can come at a lot of different risks. And it can also come at a lot of premature disruption when we don't know if a, there's a more mature version that's going to be safer will be right around the corner. But that said, I think what one of the things um, in, in some of the corners that, that we're kind of saying has had some interesting thoughts about this is that, you know, the main disruption was in students writing essays, right? And the, the thing is, is that when students write essays or an assignment, the essay itself doesn't really have that much value. It's not like we, we take that, we post it, it has any value, we can publish it or sell it. It's actually the process that the, the, the output of that essay is that it demonstrates a process that has occurred, a process of thinking. So really it's about what, what it showed us, I think, or should show us is that what we're trying to do is actually chase back to do better process analysis. And there's ways to implement um, you know, real-time types of writing assignments that can happen in the classroom that can be analyzed or, or ways to even leverage assignments with LLMs that can demonstrate a, a type of pro understanding of the process of essay writing that, that can take place in these. So we need to make sure that we know what is actually the valuable part that we want out of this, this exercise and, and not what we may have formally thought the output should be. Um, but that's, that's one thought on that. I, I'll stop uh, for a moment and let, let other people speak. Well, I don't think you're going to stop because I'm going to follow Kyra's and making and having you here in our audience. This is a um, 
I'm thinking about the technology and using it in the curriculum in the classrooms, and I'm thinking about how inclusive or exclusive that is. And 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 it's the, the other part of it, right? Because um, the, how many teachers really can be upscaled in a particular moment? How many schools have the resources to actually follow up with some technology? Um, how many students will be able to carry out that technology out of the classroom? So I'm just thinking about these, these elements because they are part of the whole journey of the career awareness journey. And uh, when we're talking about curriculum. So when we're looking at it from that perspective, I'm talking, uh, what impacts do you think um, this having, not having, following, not following, upskilling, not being able to, may have to even be a barrier in some cases. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I, I don't have a lot of, uh, so, so you're talking about like uh, uh, so different groups having maybe greater advantage in the access to the technology and such versus those who, who, who may be um, either for um, intentional reasons might be deciding not to implement or for or maybe maybe reasons of, of lack of resources. Um, I don't have a lot of mature thoughts on that other than that is a that's a very very serious concern because as as these and and they should be this is double double edged sword. So on on one hand, the the more that these the more powerful these technologies are, the more it could could ex exacerbate differences by having really knowing how to you properly use prompt engineering or having a curriculum that kind of can integrate these these types of tools in the classroom. On the other hand, they're becoming just more and more accessible and and cheaper and cheaper to access, right? Where it's it's now about just do you have access to a mobile browser and can you access one of the handful of of of, of large language models like ChatGPT or Perplexity or uh, Claude or Bianthropic or these various ones that are also free as well. So um uh, uh so I don't have a good answer for you other than that's a place that I'm very much watching and hopefully I can have maybe some better thoughts on that in the future. Maybe a separate discussion entirely. Yeah, it's an interesting, yeah. interesting question. Yeah. Any other final thoughts on, on this before we move on? Well, I just, if I can share, because I was thinking about how to embed curriculum and, and having gone through that experience recently in aligning curriculums and multi-countries, um, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, the Gatsby, for example, just released um, some trends for, for the younger years. And it's pretty interesting on what is included and what is not included. And basically, when I, when I contrast that with the Canadian um, curriculum, for example, um, and then also, if you look at it, Australia has their own curriculum. And in the Middle East, Amy, you, you, might, in, you might have seen also some guidelines in the Middle East as well for careers and, and technology. What all of them have in common is that careers is a different component. And I think that the trend should be embedding it within everything students are doing. And, and an example to that was would be, I don't know if you're familiarized with twin um twin science, which is an online application, which is a sustainability created. It's project-based, Daniel. And what kids do is that they get to choose a problem of the world that they want to solve. And that could be in any area. It could not, not necessarily has to be science, but it involves some robotics and it involves the use of technology and the resources to be creative, to design something, to think out of the box. 
And that is uh, something that arises from the academic context, not necessarily from an afternoon session that I'm going to have with people to talk about sustainability, for example. And, and another piece that I think is really, really important, and I think it was, um, Kyra, you had said it, who, to put the right people in front to make it to make things, kids think that it's possible. And there is this powerful um, online platform, it's called Career Girls, and it is a dedicated platform on role models for girls. And in particular girls, and these are women of all sizes, shapes and colors and careers. So this is another thing that I think we think about because this technology that you put, you use as a, as a resource to make it accessible to see what is possible. So my, I think my bottom line is that embedding anything that we do with careers and future readiness is the way to go not necessarily separating it as a different thing. Um, that's when you discover the purpose, when you put it together and you discover what is it that kids, you know, forget what time it is because of what they're doing as an indicator of, you know, this is something that I'm passionate about. That's all I wanted to add to that. So I'm really grateful that you had that piece to, to that segue. Awesome. Thanks, Reza. Good stuff. All right. Well, I'm going to hand this over to, to Sean now for the next three questions. Um, yeah, and I'll listen away. I'm, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So, yeah, Sean, over to you. Great. So next up is what practical strategies and initiatives can schools implement to bridge the gap between education and industry, ensuring that students are well prepared for real world employment? I have some thoughts here um, based on kind of, I think Rosa will uh, have some, done similar things perhaps. Um, but I think, you know, that idea of having your mentors come in in different ways, whether that's a hybrid virtual or in person, including your parent body if you're in a school, um, because you also have references there that can talk about their direct experience and open up, you know, work experiences and networks. But basically it's opening the doors to any kind of community that your students don't have within the school already. And so that, that touches on lots of things about making things more equitable. I'm really interested in, in, in inequality and subject choice, Rosa. And so, you know, it's like boys at a high school level are half as likely to take arts or visual arts subjects. And we know that there's a big uh, underrepresentation still of women in, working in STEM. So what leads to those things happening is definitely a bias that we create within the school system. And so anything that we can do to under, uh, underpin kind of some of those other models or other, those other people that we can put them in front of, connect them with, get them involved in projects that will take them alongside their learning into new fields that cannot be covered in the curriculum. And you can do that digitally, you know, programs like yours, of course, um, you know, we use Global Online Academy here and that helps open doors to courses and pathways that maybe just aren't on display at school. Um, so I think it's it's about utilizing your networks as much as you can and being connected yourself is incredibly important because you might need to suddenly figure out, you know, what on earth a drone operator does, <laughs> what they studied to get there and what kind of skills they need to have so that you can explain, okay, this job exists. Or, so I, I just, I love the idea of having kind of, you know, big piece of piece events that kind of gather together all of those different threads and putting people together so that they have aha moments is really important. And I think if you can get your parents in the same room as your students, they can go through that process together. Um, I just want to add, I think it does depend also on the resources of the school. 
Um, but I do agree that parents are a huge resource um, for your school and your student body. At my school, my current school, we actually have it embedded into the curriculum. So not all students will do this, but they can. Everyone has the opportunity. So we have two things that they are able to do. They can do um, a personal project, which is basically a passion project. Um, and they work with one of our faculty advisors um, on that to create it, implement it, get it going, whatever that may be. It could be community service type project. It could be technology. It could be anything that they are interested in. Then we also have an internship class that students are allowed to participate in. They also have a faculty advisor on that. They find their own placement, but again, it's something that they want to do, they find interesting. Um, but I think that it's really important for our students to go out into the community and actually see what these jobs or what these career fields um, have to offer, because sometimes they walk away from it loving what they thought they would love. And sometimes they walk away and they think, okay, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so I think that it's really important if it's possible for schools to actually have these types of classes and projects embedded within the curriculum so that students can just have access to them just in their school day. Amy, I feel like we're all in really talking about the same issue in different layers and, and we're talking about it and coming back to it. So I'm just going to go a little bit to square one and I'm going to try to, to put together something that Daniel said about the right resources and what we're saying about models and community. And, and Max, this is where I would like to see if we could share that slide on, um, this is one of my favorite slides when we're talking about the use of technology in, um, in schools or how we select technology or resources to plug and play, as we say. Um, let's see if we could see it. Yes. Okay, so that's my, my favorite video, my favorite slide. And, and the reason is so obvious, right? How many times, and I say this because I'm walking in, in some classrooms or some offices and I'm saying, why are you using this? What is the need for it? And sometimes it's because it was the most thing I saw in a conference and it was so useful and somebody pr promoted it and it worked so well. And the reality is that, um, as you have said, Amy, our communities are very unique and the plug and play that might work in the Middle East might not work in South America. Um, basically because it's in Spanish. I need something in Spanish and not in English, right? And just that very simple thing about thinking about resources, I think we're, we're accountable for selecting in, according, in accordance to the needs of our population. And this brings us me back to what you had been mentioning about using our community. How many times do we really overlook the, the, the economies where our students are in because we bring these career clusters and say, oh, the green, or this is what's happening. And, and in our best intention to lay out the future of work as we're reading it, maybe our community is telling us that the problems that need solving maybe don't require a university degree. They might require a different type of skill set, and that student that you have in front of you has that skill set. And then once again, so I'm just bringing this back to to connecting with what we had all said before about how community is so important and how vital it is for us to listen, to listen to the ground 
and to be in context because it's not an isolated uh, activity of career counseling. We are bringing parents in with values. We are bringing in a community. And in some ways we might be even shaping values of some careers over others in the same way we shape institutions of higher education over others and try to fight these biases. So in a way we're like these warriors <laughs> and that we are accountable for ourselves for building and supporting. Um, I just wanted to say that just because it's, I found that it was an interesting piece to, to connect uh, what we're saying all together, which is really important on listening and our community and bringing in what we have at hand and enhancing when we need it. And that's okay. If it's okay, I wanted to jump in really quick with something from a kind of technology side on on this question so um uh one of the things that uh so a lot of my background really comes from um uh, online space and online digital learning content as well and so uh when it comes to practical strategies initiatives that schools can implement um the gaps between education and industry um uh one of the things that we're looking at at, at immerse right now is um you know understand to understand the career you need to understand what are some of the job profiles? Understand what's gonna be important for that job profile. You need to understand the skills that are need to be gained. So, you know, we're, we're working in right now to, to start to, under, to have a kind of taxonomy strategy for skills. So we can start to kind of map and track the learner progress, the ones that are interested in career progression towards the careers and skill, then the skills that they're gather, gathering on their kind of lifelong journey. You know, and this has a lot of implications on, on the online space on how we would Kind of map and tag content and media and and and, and other types of um, uh, elements that they're going to interact with as their as their time uh, that they're that they're on the immersed platform and and as they're going forward uh, through their progression. I think one of the greatest things that happened during the pandemic is is being able to have programs online that connected students to employers in a way that they couldn't have access beforehand so it really you know your program explodes a student's kind of capacity to imagine right um, and it was kind of the same with you know I worked in a tech startup um, during the pandemic and, and we were doing the same thing we were running client projects with real clients for students that wanted to do CAS activities online they had nowhere else to go at that point they didn't have a network and they needed to make connections but you know, they were able to, to have kind of like a real brief set by somebody who had an actual job and, and the work that they created was going to have some kind of impact or at least be listened to in a board meeting. And I think that translation of something into a real world context is just so fantastic. And the, the ability of technology to accelerate that and put students, especially in places where the local community might not have the answers in their current job market to fit or suit the students' uh, capacities. It's wonderful to be able to then augment and open up using technology and, and connection so I, I i love what you're doing i think you know there's there's room to go further because it's a safer space to of course meet and interact other adults with the right safeguarding provided but it's also a fantastic opportunity to just grow and have a network as a young person and i i think you're right though Kyra. and i think also if we're just talking about like a macro global perspective i always find it interesting the possibilities that um online Lock, unlocks for different communities around the world and the ability or the prospect of communities or individuals being able to leapfrog um, into different careers 
whereas before um, because they're able to learn from role models or from content that's available uh, online uh, rather than in person um, and I think that's a that's a huge advantage of um, of remote learning and of, of remote participation as well in things like in things like online projects as you mentioned or, or online internships. Chen, I'd, I'd like to add that there are concrete examples of doing research online for younger um, kids. And I'm impressed on how someone in Singapore can work with someone in South America. And what's impressive is that these are like-minded kids that are finding each other around the world, that in their schools, in their own communities, they might be the odd um, person who you know, has this particular um, interest in this particular area but then through these platforms where there's research then there's professor guiding the research they really can develop their potential and develop friendships in people who have the same passions that they do so it's going beyond right it's going beyond what what the limiting context is and your even space of the school to to, to learning um, beyond borders so there is great growth and, and that helps also great growth in the personal development and feeling that you have your people too <laughs> in, in the wider world. Great, so just into the next question. Um, are there any successful examples or best practices you've come across either directly or indirectly from around the world that schools and educators can learn from when it comes to future-proofing student skills and career readiness? You lost Kate that one off. <laughs> I'm just gonna jump the gun to set us off because I'm certain we all have um, an example that we want to share. I think I'd like to share an example from one of our schools in Malaysia that is STEAM school. And I'm certain that we all have heard of green schools and things like that. But what I like about the STEAM school is that it's not fragmenting your interest in science or in math or in arts, or it's a collective perception that, you know, this is it. So when you, you future-proof, when you showcase potential, when you prompt that anything is possible and that there's agency in how you wanna organize your skills at a certain time, because the learning that you can readjust your skill sets and learn reskill sets is also there. So I would say that school in particular, we do have a little video, which is less than a minute that is inspiring and maybe will get us going. But if we don't have the time, it's absolutely fine. We can just send it off. I'll leave it to you, Max. Personal experience, in terms of our offline residential programs. Um, and now, bear in mind, this, is, this was pre-pandemic, um, but one of the most powerful uh, workshops that we, used to, that we still do um, with students is a future skills workshop. And it's remarkable that students just leap at this opportunity to learn about practical tips, such as you know, how to manage your uh, time. You know, something that seems very, very simple, but they schools inherently are, tend to be quite passive learning environments working towards particular curricula working towards particular examinations and students are really confined in terms of um what they're supposed to be studying and, and how they're supposed to be studying as well um and just simple um just a simple workshop i think which exposes students to skills that 
you know, mature adults need to use in order to navigate their everyday life can be very powerful um, to students at such a young age because uh, all of a sudden they're able to grasp that they have agency over their time and agency over the decisions that they're making going forwards with regards to um, you know, whether that be their future academic career or future uh, professional careers. Yeah, I was going to add that we, we were talking about schools that maybe inspire us or we feel passionate about. Rosa, I'm definitely a Green Schools fan. I did a, a certificate with them. But um, one of the schools I've learned about recently, which is a, a Milwaukee high school, um, which is set up uh, kind of a, a startup culture, a very PBL-based culture based on mastery, based on connections within the community. And I'm obsessed with this, this woman, Kim Taylor, who's set up this high school and improved the results and the academic um, sticking power, the staying power of the students year on year. Um, and she has a really mixed and really diverse community there that have, you know, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic um, groups attend the school. But the thing that that school has in common with many others that are, you know, maybe more famous is freedom of choice and the ability for students to, um, to have unstructured time. And you see that kind of theme in lots of like the world's most successful companies as well, you know, where Google employees um, supposedly don't get any tasks in their first year of work, right? They just have to go and see what kind of team they can become a part of and what, what, what projects um, are meaningful to them and where they can lend their skills and their ideas. And I think some of the, the rigidity of the school day of the culture of having to study for a particular exam and having this many hours in this seat um, is undoing some of that natural curiosity in, in young people. Um, and it's playing against it. So I, I think the schools of the future, the, the, you know, the activities or the, the way to focus um, on agency is to make sure that there really is agency given and that there is freedom given so that you can explore and then you have kind of, you know, a safe network of places where you can go and explore. And I think we're probably all doing that in our various various ways or trying to champion that. But it just it just seems so so simple and yet it's really difficult for us as educators to let go of that control of the classroom and to you know kind of destructure and unstructure some of the times and start to mix age groups as well um, and that's something we do here at Benjamin Franklin I just I just went to a, a flex time activity yesterday for a community gardening project and it was grade six through ten you know learning to work together um, and it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out but hey it gives us the opportunity to fail it gives us the opportunity to have conversations we wouldn't usually and I think a lot more of that will bring more joyous learning and, and more and more elements of curiosity that will help you know our students forge ahead with all of these changes that we're trying to we're trying to uh, um, you know see coming and maybe we can't. Sorry, sorry, Rosa. I was just jumping in quickly. So what's, what's the name of the school out of interest? We'll put a link to that in in the, in the article too. Which school? The one in Milwaukee? Yeah, is it Kim Kim Taylor you mentioned? Yeah, Pathways High. It's called Pathways High. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Brilliant. Sorry, Rosa. Oh, no, no, thanks, Max. You actually was going to ask her that exactly same question. <laughs> so uh, great minds, um, Kyra. And I would, I would, you're, you're inspiring me to go back to something what, that Sean had said about experiential learning and learning unstructuredly and, 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 um, to share about a school in Ontario. And it's called St. Mildred's Lightboard School. And it's a girls' school. I worked there before. And what happens there is that when students are in grade 11, they take a full month and students go to work and they don't come to school. They go to work the full month and, and they have to interview for these jobs and they have to create their LinkedIn accounts and they have to have these real jobs and they have supervisors. What I think is important is, is all those skills that you mentioned, Shonda, about now I have to get myself to work. 
<laughs> what am I going to wear? Um, I don't talk to my boss this way. Um, how do I craft this email? How do I? And so all these real life learning are happening in real life. And it's impressive to see when students come back from this experience, how suddenly they grew up and their conversations and their interactions have been shaped in a way that it's not rigid. It's just aware that it's not in high school that again, right? So I just think I wanted to bring that up because a lot of our schools around the world are doing these things without realizing the impact that they have. And I think I'd like to go back to what you said, Kyra, the, the little things, the small things, and go back and to, to evaluate the impact that they already have. And once again, build on what we don't have to improve. So that's the only thing I wanted to say and share that. Thank you. Great, thank you. And on to our final question. Um, how can we strike a balance between the expectations of parents and regional and cultural contexts when it comes to advising students on future career paths? You know, I'm just gonna jump the gun and say, accepting that there isn't a balance is the first step. There is no balance. And, and quite frankly, they may, there may not be a balance and that's okay. What I think is important is that we are aware of that they're in a different spot. And having worked with parents in that sense, re meet, reaching them where they are, and that might be a big struggle and it might challenge, but it's separating their experience as their own experience of learning, of, of, of going through their own journey, because on top of that, they're going through the separation and all the everything that happens with parents when they let go. But on top of that is letting go to something they don't even know because it's nothing familiar to them. So there's a lot of, you know, emotional aspects that are associated to the balance. And I would say that the most, the healthiest thing that we could do is first assume there's no balance and not expect that there will be a balance. Um, and then we can navigate journeys <laughs> at their own pace. That's, that's where, that's my take on that. <laughs> Tyra, Amy, your thoughts. Yeah. Thanks, Rosa. Yeah, I was about to comment on that and I agree with you completely. I don't really know if there is a balance to that. I do think for my own um, practice um, as a school counselor, I like to get to know my families fairly well. Um, I like to get to know their backgrounds. What type of education did their parents have growing up? What expectations were they kind of saddled with as well as they were growing up. And it does, it tells you a lot about what is going to happen in their, their own, their, their child's journey as well. And their expectations that come into play because of their cultural background or their educational background. Um, it is hard to strike a balance with that because they, you know, again, I think, I think it was you, Rosa, who said, you know, things have they things have changed so much over the last 30 40 years you don't stay at a job for that long anymore you jump around you change what you do within a job you know you change your job title you change a lot of things the parents um of students you know some of them are fairly young don't get me wrong um but there are others that are you know in their 50s 60s um and they have stayed at a job for a long time so they don't understand um, necessarily how that's going to affect their child and how things are going to be different even in two years from now. Um, and so I, I think that having a conversation with them about their own background helps a lot with that balance 
um, when it comes to helping your student um, kind of maneuver through um, not just academics, but, you know, the application process to university and, and even choosing a major because um, their parents do have a lot of say in that. So, but I do agree. There is no, no there is no balance. It's going to go like this all the time. <laughs> I can tell you're both comprehensive counselors because you have such kind, like psychologically welcoming responses. You know, the, the kind of rebel in me wants to say, get with the program, the world's changing. <laughs> but, you know, going back to the first point we all made, which was about having compassion and having empathy for who you're working with. Um, the truth is in exactly what you've said, which is you've got to meet people where they're at and be the person who brings in alternatives. And if that can help one in five students or families find a different way or understand that success looks a different way than they imagined it, that's great. Um, it's also the reason that I end up working with lots of adult clients um, later on because they followed a pathway, did everything absolutely right and still don't understand why they're not fulfilled at work in their mid twenties and early thirties. So I think we, you know, we have to be compassionate. We have to understand that not everyone's gonna make the first um, choice uh, for life and that's gonna be the right choice necessarily at the time, but that that's a growth pathway. Um, and you know, I think what we can do is just be those voices of, have you considered or have, do you know about, or can I introduce you to, so that you just widen the lens a little bit there without being too much of a, uh, a hard line, you know, get 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 with the change the rapid change <laughs> progress that's coming your way um but I, I must admit i do i do get a bit um you know disappointed with talking about the same 10 uh, degree pathways sometimes uh, and especially in certain cultural contexts that is that is definitely an issue so it's just broadening that out you've you've mentioned something um really interesting Kyra, that, that it is possible to bring some kind of a balance and i would say balance in how you communicate that would be maybe it's not balanced on what pathways that this going to be it's healthy to disagree in that sense and for us it helps but but bringing balance in the communication bringing balance in the expectations so it's it's bringing balance in the other things that are not necessarily the first pieces of career but that foster a healthy an atmosphere for that conversation of careers to happen this so, is it because you can diffuse lots of difficult conversations using those tools yeah Thank you so much, guys. Uh, I think we've uh, yeah we've run out of time, unfortunately. I know we could talk for for hours on this topic. It's such a such a huge huge topic area, and I'm sure we'll have lots more conversations about this. But um yeah, unfortunately that's all we've got time for today. But yeah, thank you so much for your time, everybody. Some really really fascinating insights, and uh, and we'll be sharing all those links in in the article too um, to build to build more and more conversation around this topic. So yeah, thank you all once again.